0: following program is produced by the align in the sound team if you like what you hear please stick around at the end of the show to find out more contact us and contribute towards a positive future
1: good morning you are listening to scotty foster and Zena richardson your host today with behind the lines on two double x community radio 98.3 fm in canberra and that was one of our favorites the formidable vegetable sound system with no such thing as waste so imagine a tech-enabled village lifestyle where all your basic needs, food and shelter, water, energy and mobility, are met affordably and without waste, allowing you to pursue what matters most to you. Circular economy villages are one of the several global mega trends that are changing the way we live and work. Joining us this morning live in studio, it's nice to have some real bodies back in the studio with us. Uh, we've got some amazing people this morning who are going to be talking to us about the idea of circular economies and circular economy villages. So we'd love to welcome to the show Stephen Liaris and Neil Money De Silva. Thank you for joining us this morning.
2: Thank you for having us. Good morning. Good
3: morning, Scotty and Zina. Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: I think Mm. we've got more degrees in the room than we've had in a long time.
2: (laughs) So
1: I guess the, the first question I would love to ask the both of you is what are circular economies? Like how are they different from the traditional linear economy
2: so the traditional economy is all about take make use dispose and and we're not thinking about the life cycle of anything that we design whether it be a product or whether it be how we design a village
3: yeah, so you also have to think of it in terms of just that, uh, that, radio, that that music song that we just had there about reuse, recycle and so on. They're just strategies to adjust the existing economy. We need to think more holistically about how we design things from the outset so that you the system has zero waste. We're not trying to educate people to... To recycle things that that they've already got. So, mm-hmm. so how do we design things much more holistically mm-hmm. as a system? Think think as a system as a
0: whole. Yeah, I, right. I so think. Uh, are, you, are you thinking of the the sort of difference between innovation and imagination? Is how Rob Hopkins uh, puts it. Innovation,
3: innovation. Innovation is like uh, a
0: pizza. So, uh, uh, a pizza you can do anything with. You can change the base out. You can put a new topping on. It'll still work because the thing you. You are using first actually works it's a functional thing but if you try and do that with a growth economy or you know something like that it's just never going to work
3: well that's right and and i think the key is is the growth economy that we're all always looking at growth whereas natural systems have a growth phase they reach maturity then they decay die and then regenerate and that's the natural cycle that we need to build into our economic system mm. there needs to be the growth and aspiration. But there also needs to be acceptance that we've reached a limit, and let go of the growth. Allow others to grow, and 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 just um, share what we've learnt in life. For example, once we've reached a certain amount of sufficient, you know, uh, whether it's material possessions or knowledge or whatever, we're not needing to continually acquire more. That we stop, and then we share, and then the next generation can grow
0: yeah sorry oh, I interrupted kind of you know did you have something
2: oh, I was just gonna say was we're, we we're so um you know we're so ingrained in our silos mm. um and and really the circular economy is, is looking at the integration of those silos mm. so we can look at the end product of say mm. energy or or food and think how that can be used as an input to another una- to another completely different mm. um silo, if you like, <laughs> yeah. the integration between energy and water, you know, because yeah. water can store energy and, and um, energy mm. can be used um, to, to pump water, like there's mm. so much integration between these systems and that's what we need to think yeah, about. Ve-
3: very much aligned with the permaculture ideas that you're not a chicken farmer or a, you know a wheat farmer you find connections between all of these activities and that's how you build diversity so circularity also in terms of thinking holistically thinking in terms of systems rather than individual mm-hmm. silos of so
1: you both have a really interesting background. Like Stephen, you come from a background of being a strategic town planner and having to rethink the design of cities. Mm-hmm. And Neil, you've got a very uh, long civil engineering background and project management background with local government. You've been looking at managing water systems and the natural environment. So how did all that come together like to, to create what you're doing now? <laughs> like, Was it things that just looking at what was broken and what wasn't working and then how can we make it better?
3: Yeah, well, very much from my perspective... Um, I've been involved in infrastructure planning and strategic planning. So so really the relationship between private housing and the public infrastructure that the housing needs. And, and we, we, again, tend to silo those things instead of seeing the integrations. And um, I worked uh, for local government in the infrastructure planning space for a long time and then uh, started working with a consultant for councils doing those same things. But... Um, I was also then working with developers, and hearing constantly. This is about a decade or 2010 or so, um, where we're constantly hearing that the current system is broken in terms of housing. In terms of having, for example, uh, uh, you know, purchasing the land, going through the process of developing it, um, whether it's the design and planning and getting the approval through council and the actual construction afterwards but then delivering a product that is affordable for the end user. So all the costs build up through that process didn't give you an affordable um, end product. And so we needed to rethink the whole, whole system. Developers were starting from back then to basically say, we need to look at alternatives. And so I felt I needed to step outside and, and, and think more holistically. and.
2: Yeah, so Steve and I used to work together. We were friends <laughs> for a long time before we became a couple. And, you know, I was the natural systems manager at a Western Sydney council. And I thought I was working in a really holistic way because we were managing catchments and we were looking at the integration of, of stormwater and flooding and, <laughs> and and also, you know, looking at deconstructing Concrete channels and making natural creek systems. We were harvesting water, so we did a lot of water-sensitive urban design, um, looking at green infrastructure. And then you know, Steve said, "Well, that's just water. It's only a component (laughs) of a city." I was like, "Okay," (laughs) and that's kind of where it started for me um, when Steve kind of opened my eyes to that.
3: But then, as we like, we visited Mm -hmm. lots of eco-villages. We spent six months in Europe traveling around and like living and working in in the different eco-villages. And what we found was during that time of just this research, we also saw the energy transition start to happen, the shift to renewables. And so the water engineers had already, in their mindset, in terms of best practice, shifted from the idea of large scale dams and pipes Mm. uh, serving an entire city to water sensitive urban design, as Neil said, where you're harvesting within a catchment and you're distributing and you're managing the landscape and the water system in the landscape that you're in. So that transition had already happened amongst the engineers in the water space. So when the energy transition started to happen, it wasn't just about a shift from large-scale power... uh, Sorry, from uh, fossil fuels to renewables, it's also a shift from large-scale to local microgrids where you can manage your own energy system. And so we started to think about that integration between an energy system and a water system at at a precinct scale or a neighbourhood scale where the energy microgrid could power a water microgrid and clean the water, help to clean the water. And then you bring the food into it. And, of course, the soil helps manage the water and and the water irrigates the food and so on. So, again, you, you're building that integration between the different systems.
1: Mm-hmm. So your six months that you spent um, in Europe taking a look at um, eco-villages was a lot about figuring out what the eco-villages were doing that also didn't work. And what not to mm. implement and include in your model, right? It
2: was very much about pros and cons. And immersing ourselves in that was really a great way mm. to understand that. Um, it, we were sort of blown away by how much was happening in Europe. There were some amazing models like Tori Superiori in Italy mm-hmm. where they had taken an abandoned village. And a village is like an apartment complex in Australia. Mm-hmm. and There's hundreds of owners there. So they had to find these owners and purchase this whole place. It took them 20 years to reconstruct it. But it was just such a fascinating place now Ooh, um, uh, and, and that was something to do with the Italian culture mm-hmm. because they, they started to, to wonder well, how do we build a cohesive community and they tried lots of different things mm-hmm. and then they just realised that it was just having a meal together <laughs> Once Why was it abandoned?
1: Like was there a reason that it hadn't worked in the structure that it was before? No, or? it
3: was abandoned um, with the mass movement of people from the villages ah, to the so cities Economic So, so Yeah, this yeah. is yeah, post yeah. Second World War So mm-hmm. So throughout Europe, there's lots of abandoned small villages mm. Mm. that were no longer sustainable. You know, there were you know, one or two older people mm-hmm. and then they left and, yeah. and the, so the structures are there and mm. how do we re, mm. God, repopulate nice, them in, in a way. Yeah. And really what we were doing was picking and choosing the best elements from different places. So yeah. that example of Torre Superiori mm. highlighted the idea of scale, how big... Should a village be in order for everyone to be able to, for it to be self-governing? Because once it gets too big, the individual voice Mm -hmm. Mm. diminishes, right? The bigger bigger it gets. So good for economies of scale, but not good for Mm -hmm. governance, right? So you need need to find that balance between that those economies of scale. And enough human and
2: resources
1: more. to make the village run too.
2: <laughs> exactly. exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and to have some privacy as well as community because mm-hmm. that was always sometimes a struggle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess when people who are
1: not familiar with the concept of eco-villages, they imagine it as a bit like a commune where there's <laughs> yes. very yeah. little separation between yeah, things. Yeah,
3: yeah. So that was another thing mm-hmm. that came up through mm-hmm. that whole process was this idea of, um, living in a commune versus um, the other examples were like co-housing, mm-hmm. where you have
1: Scandinavian model. Right? Yeah, yeah, very yeah. much,
3: and and so you have your individual house, but you have some shared facilities mm. and shared gardens and, and certain things. So, um, coming from my background of housing and public mm-hmm. infrastructure, where we have that sharp line between your private property and public land or public infrastructure, it was how do we find a better balance between mm-hmm. Um, you know, what happened in the 60s was, you know, all these private interests, uh, you know, so we all live in a commune together. So you go from one extreme to the other. And what we were looking for is that balance. How do you find a balance between your privacy and your shared mm-hmm. spaces? And that doesn't need to align with the, what you own. You can own a village collectively but still have your own private space. So, yeah. You'd mentioned
1: in um, something I read of yours when I was doing some research that in this model of, of um, sort of a commune-based, very, very collective village, you've got a lot of people becoming exhausted by that, not being able to separate <laughs> themselves from the collective, but wanting to be included, but needing that, um, that separation, as you described.
3: Yeah, I, I think uh, the exhaustion... Um, I'm not sure which article you read there, that's interesting. <laughs> the exhaustion comes from, um, I feel, in, in some of these eco-village mm-hmm. examples, is that you still have to run your house and do all your things that mm. you ordinarily do and then we add this extra layer of, of oh, do governance. Your gardening
1: duty or gardening do your, duties yeah, recycling. or, you know, you have yeah. to
3: give certain hours a week t- mm. or per day to, to the community. And it just, it, it doesn't alleviate your... Uh, your, your expectations or, or responsibilities in your household. It just adds more. And so coming back to the circular economy idea, the idea of doing things collectively is to lighten your load in the household. So if, if the collective things provide you with your, your energy and your housing, then your costs of living are going down. And, and if, if you can collectively finance the housing... Um, and get a better interest rate or share the costs more evenly, then your mortgage costs go down. So it's the idea of how does the public activities, the shared, act, shared collective activities, lighten your household load, not add on top. And mm. I think the exhaustion comes from that mm. extra layer that we Would that create? be like,
1: like collective solar for the whole community rather than individual when you're speaking of energy, did you mean like yes. actual power energy? Power, power yeah. Power, not yeah. so much just the energy of well, motivation, human, <laughs> human energy? Yeah.
3: Well, the human energy uh, is – we have to think of energy mm. as one thing again. Mm. It's mm. – if we're not – if we're allowing technology to do work for us, then we're lightening our mm-hmm. load. If we're, um, if we're allowing natural systems, for example, the energies of natural systems to manage the landscape – naturally Mm. then it lightens our load but if we think of them in silos then Mm. then we're just adding Mm. right and it's a it again it's how do we think holistically about everything is energy ultimately
1: Mm. and you also mentioned the other issue with this collective model was that not everybody pulls their weight equally Mm. so that (laughs) there would be situations where you had Particular people within the community who maybe weren't contributing as much as was required. That's human nature, yes. isn't it? <laughs>
3: yeah, and it is like, and I think sometimes one thing that we constantly came across in eco-villages was that complaint by some people that we're doing all the work and so and so is not doing anything, or you know, what is work? Like some people see work as physically building or digging trenches or something, whereas someone who's working on online doing the uh, website. E- website design <laughs> or something isn't really working, yeah. right? <laughs> so, so People's, uh, yeah, perspective
2: yeah. Of, of work was very different as well. Mm-hmm. So that was something interesting. Mm-hmm. And and you talked about energy before. Um is a good example mm-hmm. of, of where a, a eco-village or community also powers the wider town around it. So that was a really great example of, of a system that was working very well from an economic perspective because mm. they really thought about lots of different streams of income. But there were lots of people around the village who were members but not living within the system. So it's a way of, you know, you can make a choice as to how involved you want to be, but you're still making a contribution. Mm.
3: Mm. Yeah, the other thing about Dam and Her though, is that, that it was designed in... In little clusters so yeah. so one cluster was doing the farming activity and the other cluster was doing sort of managing the grocery shop retail type activities and there was a health cluster so it, it, it's also about finding where you can make your contribution um, and being valued mm. for whatever that is rather than being expected to do exactly everyone to do exactly the same Mm. thing you haven't done your share of washing the dishes or you haven't done your share of weeding the garden like okay
2: and sometimes that meant that couples might be living in different clusters Mm. so we found that kind of interesting Mm. because i think you know as australians our social, like what we accept socially might be quite different from what a European might might accept. So that was something else that I found quite interesting because it was far more fluid sort of relationships and, you know, a, a couple would come Together, I can't remember how often it was every year or every five years to kind of decide whether they wanted Reaffirmed. to reaffirm their marriage vows and decide whether they want to continue in that relationship mm-hmm. or not. And yeah, they were quite we we were quite challenged by some of the experiences that we mm. had. <laughs> Let me say that but, in that way. But what it, <laughs>
3: what it yeah, does it, though, Ursula Lagoon, the it, <laughs> yeah, d- <but> dispossessed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah.
3: But what it, what it really does is it it asks you to question things that you usually wouldn't question we accept a lot of things mm. just that's how things are and uh it, it these experiences they kind of force you to question everything mm. so th- th- you know yeah. it's about questioning everything that's been my and, motto. and living outs- you?
2: outside <laughs> your comfort <carpet> zone yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then after this you moved into your motor home so, mm. so what happened then yeah, so that was been a dream for a long time. And we spent several years trying to decide which sort of vehicle would be best. And, um, you know, the motivation for Steve is, is he really wants to be a minimalist. <laughs> and, and so kind of, you know, trying to think about what was essential for us to to leave uh, was an interesting exercise in itself Um, it was all about doing research for Steve's PhD it's about taking the ideas around Australia and finding the pockets around the country where these ideas resonated so we did lots of different things we did guest lectures at different universities we worked with students on their master's Mm -hmm. projects Um, we went to festivals we sometimes we really just stopped in one place and had lots of meetings with council staff doing presentations to the councillors we had both come from a long history of working for local government so we really understand how local government works but we also understand that that is where this process needs to start because the planning policies don't support the kind of village that we are talking about and often People go ahead and spend years planning something, and then it takes them almost 10 years to get through this approval process. So, we are not talking about just one you know, building one village somewhere. We're we're talking about let's change the process. Let's create a new paradigm for town planning. And that was really that thought behind the van. Mm.
1: We've had um, the tiny home folks on the show who are looking at Mm. building tiny home villages and one of the things they kept running up against was zoning issues. Mm. You couldn't even zone the land Mm. um, to allow for the um, permanent placement of a tiny home.
3: That's right. And... Um, yeah, I love that the idea of tiny homes. It's, uh, it is that minimalist drive and mm-hmm. how do we make things much more affordable mm-hmm. and live more simply. Um, but, yes, of course, the, the zoning. So this is, this is my background. This is where I've come from and I understand why it's there. And, and there's, there's, there's good reasons for it. The, the idea of the planning system is to zoom out to the whole of the local government area. Uh, And every few years, councils do um, a growth management strategy or housing strategy, and they consult the community and ask, what kind of housing do you want? Where do you want it? you know, go through that process. And so once you've done that strategically, you don't want developments coming up and saying, oh, oh, I've bought this parcel of land and I want to put housing here Mm -hmm. when it's outside the scope of the strategy. Um, And the strategy is important, not just for where to put housing, but how to design the infrastructure for that housing. And I think that's the layer that people really don't see. Uh, and, um, and, And so, yes, of course, there are those problems with with the tiny house and eco-villages, again, those same problems, trying to get those through the planning process. So it is the planning process that we need to deal with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the story with composting toilets was that in each local region, somebody had to pioneer it and spend those ten years beating their head on the wall until it finally got through, and then everybody could do it. (laughs) Well, not not
3: always. Sometimes they just let it through because this person kept on banging on about it. Yeah, right. And they said, "Well, we'll we'll make an exception in this case, but we're not going to. We'll bring in our policy so that no one else can even think about it."
0: Interesting.
2: But sometimes (laughs) council has built infrastructure to service areas that have not even been developed. So even if you want to process your waste on site, you were not allowed to because the system on, depended on getting the waste from all these developments that were going to happen. So yeah. there, were lo- there were lots of challenges that we came across. Yeah, there's a so, great
3: example in that one with the, the Tasmanica village down in the Tasman Peninsula where so th- there's this small town called Nubina and the council was expecting to develop, to, to expand. And uh, Tasman Village is right on the edge of New Bina. And they built this um, sewage treatment plant using natural systems, wetlands and so on to, to keep it running. And the ecovillages wanted, wanted to manage their own uh, waste. And the council wouldn't let them because they'd already designed this great <laughs> natural wetland to manage the waste uh, at a scale that needed the village to feed into it. Needed it. a certain
0: mm. amount of water coming right. through the pipes. Yeah, or, yeah.
3: yeah. So they yeah. were they were yeah. putting dog food into it just to keep it operating.
1: <laughs> so, it's, so I'll you never know. forget that image. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here you go, Fido. <laughs>
3: Fido wasn't getting it. <laughs> it was just being straight into, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. into the waste yeah. treatment.
1: Well, Speaking of areas, I heard that there's um, potentially going to be um, a circular economy village near bellingen yes, New
2: South Wales. <laughs> yeah. So we're very excited about that project. Um, we worked with the community up there, and there's a very active um, housing forum there. There are lots of issues of people who've lived there for a very, very long time being priced out of the housing market and the rental market because people from the big cities like Sydney are going up there to live, uh, especially after COVID, you know, we can work remotely and all of that. But even prior to that, people sort of purchasing property for Airbnbs. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a big housing crisis there in particular, you know, with women, amongst women over 55. Um, And and so this was a big issue and council was doing a new housing um, strategy. And we were able to actually get an action in that strategy that they would look at um, developing policy and then designing and actually building a secular economy village well Um, they
3: the the action said they work with a proponent proponent, yes to do a pilot project so it it de-risked it for the council it's not as if we're changing all their policies it's just saying they'll work with us to be flexible in terms of the planning controls in order to design and build a pilot project Mm -hmm. and then the idea was whatever lessons we got from that they could feed into the broader housing Mm. policies for for the projects to be replicated in other places or within the local government area
2: but what is really exciting is is that we won a state government challenge or we were selected as one of the finalists in a state government challenge last year um so now we are partly funded to do the next stage of the planning work up at Ballingen, and in fact in february we are going up to bellingen to start uh, interviewing the council staff as well as speak with the department of planning about this next phase
3: so so again it's thinking holistically how the the senior staff that we're talking with it's right across the council how Mm. does this affect the water infrastructure plan that they've got how does it affect the development contributions plan which is the plan where developers fund public infrastructure what kind of development controls do we need? So all different sections of council. What rates would apply to mm. this land? How does it affect waste levies if mm. you're managing all your waste on site? So all of these things are affected. So we need to talk across the different council, uh, council departments and also going up the chain, if you like, to the regional uh, Department of Planning people mm. as well.
0: So and you're getting in there and you're, you're listening to these people who are doing the work already in the councils, is that right?
3: No, we've developed the model and, and, and suggested, identified the kinds of changes that we think are needed within the council systems. And we're going to talk to them about starting to negotiate how do we do that. And again, because it's, it's um, partitioned into a single pilot project, it's not a risk that it'll, you know, blow out to, <coughs> excuse me, in the whole of the local government area and there be a whole lot of developers coming in and doing something completely different that wasn't mm. anticipated. Yeah, yep, we're, yep. yeah, we're trying to create a, a complete system that can mm. be then replicated and managed to deliver the outcomes that we want to deliver because the planning system at, at its core wants to deliver environmentally sustainable development that is, uh, you know, attracts investment to the local government area and builds the economic capacity and is socially sustainable and it is what the community want. That's at the motherhood statements what the planning system wants to achieve and that's what we want to deliver. Mm -hmm. So it's about the mechanics of how do you get from those motherhood statements to the outcome that we want.
2: And part of that process is also doing some locality planning. So to work with council staff to say, where in your local government Shire would this kind of development be more suitable? And so we are very keen to have an interaction between the existing town and the new village so that we can make use of infrastructure that's already there but then also provide things that might not be there so that you can have this... You know, it's not a gated Mm, community. You can have this synergy between people who are already living there. Mm -hmm. What
1: I loved is also you had suggested this model for some of the fire-ravaged areas in (sighs) East Gippsland. And that's something, I mean, we've had a very wet year. People, you know... But they're still recovering from two years ago. You've know, yes. we've still got half-dead communities because the rebuild's mm. so slow and mm. people were concerned about rebuilding an area where they may be vulnerable again to fires. So, so this concept of this, um, what you're talking about, this circular economy village, has a potential to also offset some of the risk of fires too, right?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that example of East Gippsland, we were down there um, just during the fires uh, and we... We met a couple of people uh, who were talking about the implications of uh, the fires for a lot of rural towns. And one of the things that we came across was the idea that, uh, so there's power lines coming into all of these rural towns and a lot of them were cut off because the power lines came down. But the consequence, the flowing consequence is that the insurance companies are saying if there's going to be more and more fires and this is going to keep happening, then your insurance premiums for these power lines have to go up dramatically. And so a lot of villages and towns were basically saying, well, we need to generate our own energy with a renewable energy system within the town and not rely on that big grid and the long transmission lines coming in. So again, it's the same sort of, um direction that we're heading how do we become more self-reliant more resilient mm-hmm. within a town and not rely on this mega grid that that connects mm-hmm. you know queensland new south wales victoria mm-hmm. south mm-hmm. australia in terms of the energy systems and once you've got that mindset then you can say well how can we do that with water how can we do that with food
2: mm-hmm. but leg is really interesting because the community there is so amazing. Um, I actually did an artist residency there. They have a floating house boat on Lake Tires. And so I was selected to kind of work with people who are already transitioning to it. Secular economy there. So I'm a photographer and a docu- I'm a documentary photog- photographer. So I was taking photographs and writing the stories of these people. And it was a fascinating way to meet the community and also to get a sense of how much support there was for these ideas. So we were actually able to have some meetings with the local council there, but it was just too soon after the fires. And they were so. Um, busy with dealing with the immediate needs of that um, but we have not lost connection with that community so we, we have we had these seeds that we planted around the country and in fact just recently we had a zoom meeting with them they're really keen for us to come down there again and we are so keen to go down there um, so so basically we can't do this alone it has to come from the grassroots like you have to have community support and that's one place where there is so much support and we hope that would be another place where such a village might happen one day.
1: Well, Scotty and I have talked a lot when we've had the bushfire issue come up about rebuilding in a way that makes sense yeah. in a, in a exactly. country that's going to be particularly prone to more bushfires mm-hmm. and yes. more severe bushfires. And, yeah. and architecturally, things have to change as well. Mm-hmm. You know, of course. Just keep rebuilding in in, in, the, in the same, same way, way and expect yeah. yourself to survive. A- pop yeah. you know, pop
0: them a new bonfire back into the landscape. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah so so just to describe the village mm-hmm. concept mm-hmm. that we're proposing, it, it's it's very much about having a reasonably compact urban form surrounded by that landscape, that managed landscape with the water reservoirs and the agricultural zone uh, and then managed um, uh, natural landscapes and natural Australian landscapes. That might also provide some food. So these are not clear distinctions. It's all very much integrated, but you're creating this buffer zone between the housing and the the areas that are going to be... um, bushfire prone, bushland Bushland, uh, the unmanaged bushland will be some distance so you can still manage the the undergrowth and the the forest floor Mm -hmm. in in the native bushland that's on or near your site Mm -hmm. there'll be strong management obviously of the agricultural zone Mm -hmm. and deep you know, water-charged landscape, so... I
2: think
0: mean, uh, there's nothing better than so so for a fire break than an irrigated barker garden, Yeah, you know? exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things we haven't spoken about is the whole issue with COVID and the fact that we have been isolating as individuals or families and, you know, the mental health crisis that's going to happen in the future because of some of these things that we've had to deal mm. with for two years now. And so imagine if you could have a whole village that could isolate, that was self-sufficient. I mean, the other thing, yeah, nice. we've already got empty shelves in... in 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 sydney again you know it's this such a sense of deja vu going to the supermarkets and so we have to really think about breaking these complex supply chains and being far more resilient and self-governing and and all of that so we feel that this is just the perfect time to take these ideas another Mm. notch up
1: well i love that you touched on COVID because that is a real issue that we saw in the beginning the things that made Neighborhoods successful in dealing with some of the issues and mental health issues around COVID was, of course, the people that started um, groups. um, Scotty, what was the name of the groups that they started that were helping people in communities isolated by COVID? I can't remember. We, we interviewed some lovely young lady about that.
0: Oh, oh, the mutual aid mutual groups. Mutual aid yes. groups, yeah. yeah. Right. Mm. Where
1: they would identify vulnerable people in the community, mm. figure out ways to uh, make sure they were included, yeah, Zoe, that do mm. things collectively, um, and even in the whole thing of, you know, like community gardens, that concept. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. And I think as human beings, it's it's, I mean, it's a bit neutral. like the tribe. We need to go back to that, yeah. Yeah. that yeah. model, right? Yeah. yeah
3: yeah um and I think certainly for those essential human needs of of community connection food um, you know in in times of crisis you need that around you where you're living and and I, I think what we're proposing certainly uh, feeds into that uh, but but I also make the point that we're talking about a network so we really want to emphasize the idea that we're not proposing to go back to an agrarian 17th century whatever lifestyle, we're looking at the next evolution of of human development, if you like. And we need to think of each village as a node in a network. So each village can be much more self-sustaining in terms of those basic necessities, but would be connected with and serve um, other communities uh, f- in relation to sort of the more complex needs or rarer skills that are needed mm-hmm. um, and this also connects with the indigenous idea of of uh, waterholes connected by song lines mm-hmm. that each place is a waterhole but you navigate the landscape and you navigate through life through the song lines mm-hmm. and 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 so you're not anchored stuck in one place you're part of a network
1: mm-hmm. yeah. so- if you've got a situation where this, this is wonderful for people that think um, with a collective model, mm. but you're always going to run into in a capitalist economy. You're going to run into the NIMBYs, right, who think that that's not good for their profit margins. Mm. Mm. So how, how do you and, and, and the council address that sort of situation? We've got people who are property owners in these areas who want to keep their places in an Airbnb and charge mm. $1,000 a night or whatever they're doing.
2: Um you, you won't get everyone on board with anything. Um, we're just going to appeal to the early adopters and give an alternate model to see who's going to be attracted to that first. Um, there are lots of farmers with about 100 acres of land who are, you know, the farming population in Australia is an aging population. And a lot of the kids of farmers have left home because they don't see this as a viable option for the future. But that's partly because we need more hands on the land to farm it sustainably. And what better way if you could actually be living on part of that land and contributing to looking after it. And and this is, you know, the, Steve will talk to you about the planning controls now, like just putting multiple dwellings on a piece of land is so difficult in Australia. On, on rural land. On rural yeah, land, because yeah. Because it's
3: all, again, it's part of that zoning process. You, this is agricultural land and we've siloed things off. This is agricultural land. We need to protect it. You can only have one dwelling and maybe a secondary dwelling on you know, every 40 hectares or whatever it is, uh, and it varies, of course, in different areas. But, but again, um, we're protecting agricultural land that is not being used for agriculture because it's just zoned <laughs> for agriculture. But mm. the farmers can't make it viable. So how do you how do you overcome this? And and the only way is to think more holistically, think in systems. It's not urban land over here and agricultural land or rural land over there. We need to integrate these things. And, um, you know, the the people who, you know, like us, who are just office workers <laughs> or whatever, don't have experience, can still contribute in some way during harvest time or when certain things need to happen, uh, even though that's, you know, you have the specialist farmers who, who can manage that land. So it's, um, yeah, I think... Yeah, just talking about that transition, there will always be obstacles, Um, target the innovators and the early adopters first, Mm. create the alternative and see what people actually want.
0: So I just had a thought there, Um, sometime in my uh, cruising around maps and things, I come across a... a a bit of the cadastre which is divided up into a whole lot of little things. And it turns out it used to be a village at one point. Mm. But in Australia, if they abandon a village, it gets bulldozed <laughs> and erased from the landscape. <laughs> mm. So you only know it's there if you come across it on a map. But some of these things are still there. Yeah, I mean, maybe that might be one point you could... Uh, yeah, use. well,
3: yeah. There, there are. We've come across a few... Um, essentially subdivisions that have never been developed. Yeah. So the yeah. land's been subdivided, identified for urban development and just never happened. And this yeah. is the example in, in, in Bellingen itself. that They did a growth strategy in 2001, I think it was, identified all this land and no one came. It just wasn't viable for a developer to to, to do, do, the work, the, yeah. do the work. So it's just... Um, but we don't want to subdivide the land. We are looking at... Um, a holistic development course, right yeah, so yeah, when you yeah. start subdividing, you create this notion of this is my private bit and the public bit or the shared bit is something else that's mm. my secondary responsibility and we yeah. want to say this is all yours your private living space might be here but your food is over there and your energy is over there and your entertainment space or your work hub are in different places and you have access to all of it except other people's private space, of course. Yeah, it reminds me of
0: um, George Mombio tells a story about uh, about private luxury and private luxury is, you know, you go to the fancy places and everybody's got their own swimming pool and they've got their own home theatre and they've got a bar and all of this stuff, but he opposes that to the view of public luxury where the community is investing into a really good swimming pool and a a really good theatre that everybody can use. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's very much. That's private luxury versus public public luxury. luxury. That's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. 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 so
2: we've thought about having sort of commercial kitchens in the village. So, you know, you have your small kitchenette in your Private space, but if you're having a party, you just rent the commercial Mm. kitchen and the public space to, to have more people over. So it's really a way of, you know, you have the same lifestyle, but you can have. A smaller it's footprint. a
1: lifestyle with a
3: plus. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, and the, like and for side. me the luxury would be having a master chef in an
1: in <laughs> an <laughs> own yeah, kitchen.
3: That's yeah, yeah, it. Who loves foods. cooking yeah. all the yeah. time? Yeah. 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 And I just turn up and I just love eating.
1: all <laughs> <laughs> Or people who want to produce in a commercial kitchen as part of their business model. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's that yeah. option. Yeah. This is where I think might be a good time to introduce a question I have. What is the Dunbar
2: number? Ooh. And how does that <laughs> work? Ooh, yeah.
3: <laughs> well, it's a contentious concept, yeah. but um, uh, Dunbar is an anthropologist, uh, sociologist anthropologist, mm-hmm. who identified this number of essentially about 150, which is the natural scale at which human communities. Uh, um, operate at without needing to create structures and hierarchies, and everyone can know everyone else, and so knows what everyone is doing and who to go to for certain issues and so on. So that number is about one hundred and fifty. The, the the way he arrived at it was really interesting. He compared the size of the neocortex of different primates, and um, found and compared that with their group sizes, and extrapolated from that the. the Based on the human neocortex size, that our size should be 150, and then he went back to a um, whole lot of um, archaeological evidence of group sizes in Neanderthal villages, in um, you know throughout history, e- even the um, the the um, the Roman army, um, uh, various groups, eco-village type groups, 150. A number between 100 and 200 kept coming up. Uh, And we talk
2: of 200 because we don't want to just limit the village to the people who are living there. Mm -hmm. We also want to cater for nomads. So yes, I was going to say,
1: you, you've been nomad yourself. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah.
2: So this is something that really appeals to me because I have a bit of a gypsy spirit in me and I love discovering new places. It's also part of my art, my creativity. And and so I think, and, and having experienced, eco, you know, the little bit of eco village experience that we did, Um, I feel that this incursion of fresh blood is such an important part of bringing new ideas of people coming and saying, oh, why do you do it that way? The village over there does it in a completely different way. Challenge the comfort zones of people who are living there. So the nomads would come and live there for about three months. There would be an exchange of skills. Um, to say at harvest time or
1: something. Mm. Like yeah, that.
2: yeah, but you know, and there are people who live on the road permanently, and different age groups from the grey nomads to the young people in their twenties and thirties who are the van lifers and their musos and different. You know, so it, 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 and and being on the road continuously is difficult, and it's nice to have a little bit of stability. And, and so we want to provide that because that's something that's missing in Australia. Mm.
0: Real I balance between me, nomadic and, and, and settled lifestyles, basically. Yeah. Reminded me of the, the ancient system of apprenticeships mm. where mm. the apprentice would move in essentially with the, the family of mm. the, the master. But the master would be obliged to feed and clothe them and look after yeah. them. Yes. But they would yeah. teach them the trade. But the next stage of that is journeymen. Yes. So mm. that's when that apprentice has learned enough that they can start going from town to town to different tradesmen within the yeah. the guild and, and learning their trade from a whole lot of different people.
3: Yes. And
2: again,
0: that would cross-fertilise yes. the ideas yes. throughout the... Uh, yeah.
2: and there's the a f- few platforms like work away and the woofers of course you know that mm-hmm. we have people coming over from overseas mm-hmm. um to work here at harvest time and other other things but it's kind of expanding mm-hmm. on that mm-hmm. yeah
1: so you've got your core group number yes and then you've got a bit of flexibility,
2: flexibility. Yes. around the transient people yes. that come and go and yes. don't stay yeah. permanently yes yeah that's a lovely idea. Yeah, very excited about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> we even went to a van life gathering to kind of talk about these concepts yeah. and they were very excited by it. They really loved it.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with scale, um, I guess, what's the role of trust in society and how does scale affect that?
3: Well, yeah, that's the core thing of, of trust, that um, at at that scale and... And you know, this Dunbar number that we're working with, it's a starting point, right? And as we develop um, hopefully a number of villages, you learn what works and and keep on learning, right? So it's not a a discrete process that is finished. But going to to this trust issue, the reason we create um, hierarchical structures and uh, siloed responsibilities is, is because we don't know everyone. And we need to look to someone with some sort of, you know, imagined authority that we've ascribed uh, that we can trust. Uh, It's a different system of this manufactured trust that we've got now as opposed to knowing everyone in your community and and just understanding what people are capable of and willing to contribute. And the trust is much more organic and much more, you know, natural, I think, at, at... at that sort of smaller scale.
0: Mm. So I guess ways of representing trust on a larger scale would be your university degree or your organic certification or that sort of thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, even money is, is a form of uh, we trust that the government is going, that I can use this to do... This bit of paper. Whatever, yeah. this paper will get you what yeah. you want.
0: See my
1: number is the computer. Yeah, yeah.
3: But, but communities before the introduction of coins and, and money... Uh, operated on a credit basis, which is essentially on a trust basis that, you know, I'm a baker and I'll provide food for everyone and trust that the fisherman will provide fish for me or that the, Mm. you know, shoemaker will fix my shoes or whatever else it was, right? Um, When you're contributing to everyone, you, Mm. you kind of create this built-in expectation that everyone will contribute there's mm, a place
2: no, it's a,
0: it's a reciprocal sort of economy yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. there's a place on the Hawkesbury River called Dangar Island it's not far from where we live where because it's a small community everybody leaves their doors open mm. and so even if you're not home some your neighbor can walk in help themselves do a couple of eggs and just leave your little note mm-hmm. to say I've borrowed this and, and so you can only have that level of trust in a small community like in Hornsby where we live we would never think to leave our doors open <laughs> well I'm very fortunate
1: I live in a, a small village of about 300 people yeah. and, and that exact thing you just describe happens quite frequently yeah. where I live where someone mm. says oh I don't have any such and such can I go get some from your garden or yes. they come and pick it and they say oh I just went and picked some letters from your garden and, Yeah. and it is an incredible thing to have that community yep. spirit and it the is. connection yeah. 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 it's like an extension of family
3: in a lot of ways yeah. and mm-hmm. it is in, in, in one one way we're trying to describe this is mm-hmm. as an expanded household mm-hmm. so we think of the household as the basic unit of society mm-hmm. and uh, the city is composed of households mm-hmm. why can't the city be composed of communities mm-hmm. village-scale communities And so so, putting
0: a community scale around a number of households rather than a a city scale around a whole lot of households.
3: Yeah, Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, as you age, it's such an isolating experience. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also about I've, I can give to this community while I'm fit and able and trust that the people will look after me when I can't contribute anymore. And that that is OK. Mm-hmm. So we can't all contribute at the same level and at the same amount all throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing that we should, you know, come to understand and accept. Mm-hmm.
1: And there were beautiful examples of uh, people within communities who were no longer able to contribute physically for whatever reason, whether it be age or disability or um, circumstances, um, who were contributing to the mental well-being of the economy Mm. and beautiful things like, you know, even taking on the role of storyteller. Yes, and, and you know, doing collective storytelling time for the yeah. children or for the community, or yeah. um, you know, sharing wisdom of years of um, yeah. knowledge and exactly. in that way. There's, there's, yes. there's always a way. Right? Right. Always mm. a way. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: mean, in yeah. Aboriginal cultures, <laughs> uh, or at least the ones that I've talked to people about, <laughs> um, the grandparents taught the kids. The parents didn't teach
3: exactly. the kids. Exactly. That's what we heard yes. too. Yes. We, yes. we learned that in um, Uluru. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was we a spent fascinating. Yeah, this was from
0: New is. South Wales, Queensland.
3: So. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that, like, well, yeah. well, even going back to when I grow, was growing up, the household had three generations, not two. Mm-hmm. The grandparents were naturally there and offered a whole range of services. So it's only in that, this last generation that we've separated out child care as a economic activity and aged care as a separate activity mm. And I think with the ageing population, there is um, an explosion in the number of retirement villages and seniors living type developments that are more of a campus type format. And we're also hooking into that idea that um, there's some academics, uh, in particular in Queensland, that we've read, read some articles where they're saying that People, as they're aged, they don't want to be put out to pasture in a retirement mm. village. They want to be part of a community. So why couldn't we design what we now call a retirement village with a multi-generational mm. um, community in it? And, and you and see that's that in, in what, Europe where they've yeah.
1: encouraged um, young people who are maybe beginning their um, university period of their life where they're mm. studying, they don't have a lot of resources, they're uh, living with an elderly member in the community and contributing to supporting yes. them in physical ways yes. Uh, yes. and then in exchange for, you know, uh, room, room and, and food. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's, and yeah. Companionship, mm. right? Yeah. Huge yeah. for companionship. Huge. And there is
0: one of the Scandinavian countries where they do something similar but there's a point system and it contributes towards your old age care huh? which you could delegate to your family members. Mm. Mm. Which is
3: point systems and counting <laughs> and accounting. <Yeah>. Somehow <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we need to get away from this kind of... Yeah. Record keeping yeah. of who's yeah. done what and what you're worth at the well, end.
1: Compartmentalising. Yeah, it. It well, that's a
0: really good segue into uh, into money and and within a village, what sort of things should be counted with money and what should just be left out.
3: So, so <laughs> I have a whole chapter on on, on this. It, it's it's a challenging notion for us in our current mindset to be able to either give or receive things for free, right? But the, the idea in this village is by, by creating a systems-based approach that through that creates abundance. In an economic sense, that means you have an oversupply of food, for example, relative to the needs of the population. Mm-hmm. So oversupply relative to demand means the price goes down towards zero, so effectively, even in an economic sense, the price should be zero for those foods. And it's like growing your own food in your garden, right, mm-hmm. except at a bigger scale. And then the community, so everyone gets fed and then you sell your surplus. And so that's what you're accounting, not, you know, what's everyone's eating within the village. It's, it's about ensuring that everybody in the village has those basic needs satisfied mm. and so you design the system to create abundance and that's a very much like an indigenous way of looking of creating yeah. abundance in the land
0: and i guess you can get so focused on as a culture on the money sort of system mm. that you can mm. wind up like burke and wills who died of starvation in a land of abundance which was supporting a whole yeah. lot of yeah. people yeah. 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 just because well, they had the story that well, we don't eat those savages food and yeah. they died for that
2: one of the villages we visited in Germany, um, Sieben Linden, uh, had a system where sort of you paid a certain amount based on the size of your family. And and even the space that you were given were, was based on how many people were part of your family. But you had access to this sort of pantry large pantry warehouse really um <laughs> where all the produce that they were making including the cheeses and everything else was left there and you went and took what you needed
0: yeah nice
2: yeah, yeah. so there was a real level of trust and obviously you're not going to hold the cheese there's <laughs> plenty there you just take what you need for the day or for the week
1: so this is something i've thought about a lot is you know when we look at most of the problems that we're experiencing in our society come from a, a fear of lack or, or, mm. or actual lack. Mm. And when there's enough, mm-hmm. people stop... Hoarding. You know, Or, or, <laughs> they, or they just stop the behaviours yeah, that yeah, cause the problems. Absolutely. They, you know, Ex- yes. and
3: All the, those behaviours yeah. come from that fear. fear. We're living in yes. fear that tomorrow I won't have food on the mm-hmm. table or I won't be able to pay my mortgage. And so you do things. You end, even the work that we do... We just do it mm. to get the money to make sure that we have that mm. food on the table, mm. and 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 that's the 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 core reason of why we do those things that that are not really well. They're
1: they well, that, ultimately they're anti aren't they? Right. Yeah. You start off with the basic needs for survival, and then as you move up the hierarchy, it becomes more about purpose. Mm.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but purpose is built on on sufficiency mm-hmm. and and having those basic needs satisfied. Mm-hmm. And and there's, this debate also comes out in people's proposal of a universal basic income, the idea that if we could all just have those basic needs satisfied, then, you know, we could do things that were much more meaningful and we wouldn't have to do things that are so destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that universal basic income depends on a government giving you sufficient money to do. External force. So it's an external force. So Mm. what we're saying is how do you create places Mm. where people can collectively provide those basic needs to everyone? Mm. And on that platform then you can then engage in the broader world and Mm. broader economic activity, Mm. challenges, art, relationships, recreation, do nothing sometimes, you know, just chill.
2: Yeah, and and that is all about the luxury of time. Um, Mm. I was reading an article recently about Time Millionaires and it's something we don't talk about, but I, I look around, I mean, I was one of those people who was incredibly stressed because I was, you know, working this huge amount of hours, commuting two hours a day to my job, um, and, and it just really wiped me out and i look at how much stress and, and and i didn't even have kids like i look at people um who you know they they barely have the time to really have a proper conversation with you and that's because we don't have a village to raise our children like we try to do everything ourselves and it's it's really difficult but time also gives you that space from which your creativity can grow and that's something that i discovered when we were living in the van as well because you didn't have to do your housework there was all these extra things that we have now because we've back home weren't there and we just had such it was such a relief. Sometimes you were camping where there was no Wi-Fi, so you couldn't be on your computer, you couldn't watch TV. <laughs> and then you just, you know, I started writing poetry, something I had never done before. I was like, where is this coming from? I would wake up one day and I would still, sleep I just need a piece of paper and I would just write. And it was just this amazing spiritual experience. You
0: know, some of the Aboriginal corroboree stories went on for days, on weeks yeah. even, yeah. you know, it's a lot of work to remember time. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah we've You're just lost... You think an opera goes for a long time. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what um, What happened? If you look what back happened? to Indigenous times, mm-hmm. there was a, a commons, sort of a holistic commons then, mm-hmm. but you know, even through the agricultural times, there was a lot of commoning and people were sharing things, as you've sort of outlined. But how did it get to be like this, where for absolutely everything, Every one of our most basic needs, we have to go to work and make money, otherwise, we wind up on the skids on the street. Question
1: we ask on this show all the time, Scotty, is what would happen if we removed all the psychopaths in the world, right? Oh, we haven't asked that one (laughs) (laughs) yet.
0: But go with the first one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what happened to make us so dependent on money?
3: We introduced money. (laughs) I mean, so money uh, is introduced. I don't want to go into too much history here, but the... Uh, we have with history. Around, around 600 BC, we have the first coins. Uh, there, there were similar sort of weights and measures of that were looked like coins but not stamped, um, had a certain value before that. But uh, around 600 BC, we have the first coins. And the Persian Empire, um, Osiris the Great, invented this idea that um, instead of... Everyone in a community doing what they, you know, what we did before, that um, everyone had to pay taxes to the king. So everyone became he became the first, and this is in the Old Testament, the King of Kings, right? So instead of each place having its own king, he became an overarching king and demanded taxes to build highways. And so the Silk Road, part of the Silk Road, was built by built into a highway to allow the free movement of people and so they had the first postal service all these ideas of public infrastructure and public services is what he offered in exchange for the taxation right but that taxation is an extraction of money from a community and a demand by the, com- the on the community to pay money so then everyone is looking for ways of getting money Instead of so the social arrangements introduced. Yeah, the economic arrangements, which were previously what do you need and what can I deliver for the community, are now how do I make money in order to pay my taxes. Mm. And so our emphasis, our economic emphasis shifts from what is needed in the community to what do I need to pay my share of the taxes. And so yes, we start getting Standing armies, um, you know, uh, public infrastructure, big, you know, uh, water infrastructure works. For example, in Sri Lanka, we visited a lot of stuff that was done around that time. Um, You know, postal type services, uh, you know. Yes, you know, they do have their benefits, but they take away from the focus of people in a community working with others in their community because they're focused on the money and paying the taxes.
0: Yeah, so that's like, it's almost describing currency and money as a if you look at it as a social ecology money is the keystone species and mm. it's just changed the rest of everything It's changed the dynamics yeah. of everything that we do mm.
3: and that's why we need to create essentially a gift economy within a community and then yes you you know for things beyond that you have a money economy but if you think about our current economic system uh, we still have two economies operating in parallel the household economy, which is a gift economy, right? You don't ask money to put the bins out Unless or to cook you've got the teenagers.
1: food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: But but the idea is the whole money economy is based on a foundation of community and free gifts done by people within the community, volunteering activities, um, you know, just household management, all that work. And this is why we have to think of everything as energy, not as, you know, the way we think of it. There's a lot of... And this is the basis of all feminist economics, is that there's all this work that's being done by women primarily, but within the community, voluntary activity, that is the foundation for our money economy. But some people who harvest all that money benefit from that free work that others are doing.
1: What was our favourite guy, we like to quote George Monbiot, I think he said, um, you know, proof that trickle-down economics doesn't work is you only have to look at the uh, the mothers in villages in, in Africa <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah, the yeah. amount of work they're contributing to the community and then they're, they're they the poorest, poorest yes. <laughs> members of the community. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And there was also some guy who wrote a book called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? And uh, <laughs> the, the inventor of the invisible hand was totally reliant on his mother. <laughs> I, I read something on trickle-down
3: economics once. It said... Um, the only example of trickle-down trickle economics is when the, piss, uh, the, the, the rich are pissing on the poor, okay. Yeah, that's
0: it, and trickling down some rich guys later. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, because you're talking about collective land ownership now and leasing structures, because you're saying the issue is zoning and stuff like that. So, moving into what you're calling like community land trusts. Right, mm. where, the, where the community owns the land. How do they go about doing that? Okay. How do you transition to that? Yeah.
3: So you say, I call that. I, what we've done here is pick and choose the, the best examples of things that are already happening. Mm-hmm. So, there's already a lot of conversation around community land trusts. There's many examples in Europe and the US. We have a lot um, more trouble. Six hundred
0: page manual. I think yeah, for Australia. Yeah, yeah So yeah, Louise Crab-tree, Louise Crabtree, at, Crab-tree yes, yeah, yeah, Western Sydney Uni yeah. Yeah. Is, is
3: at the forefront of all of that. On the show,
0: actually, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah, she's she's good value, uh, and and has done a lot of that work. And so what we're doing is picking and choosing the best elements of what people are already. Mm-hmm you know, developing. And community land trusts, there's different ways in which they can function, but there's some, the general principle of the collective ownership of that land in the form of a trust um, that is held in perpetuity so that you, you do away with land speculation. We're not buying and selling land anymore. So I think you it's, called it
1: hold and manage rather than build and sell.
3: Yes, hold and manage.
1: <laughs> ah. <laughs> you where You've got to be careful. Scotty and I do a lot of research. <laughs> yes.
2: Yes. I'm, I'm, dug I'm into really some impressed though. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> hold and manage, yeah. So, so um, and this in some ways can sound far-fetched or uh, on the fringe or whatever. But it's actually happening in the mainstream development industry now. So um, we gave the example of uh, of a retirement village is is you know a village essentially owned um, by one entity. Uh, it's not necessarily owned by the people who are living there, but you could have that uh, that option. And uh, so, as a COVID response, the New South Wales government introduced uh, policies to uh, assist. New kinds of development that they're calling built to rent and Mm -hmm. co living. So,
1: is that different from rent to own? So, the built to rent, yeah, a little bit,
3: yeah, yeah, a little bit different. So, this is geared towards um, uh, and it's as a result of um, lobbying by Mm -hmm. the major developers, so it's in done for Mm -hmm. them. Um, but it's built to rent is like 50 apartments. Uh, minimum, uh, to to get the land tax benefits. Um, and it's essentially a precinct or a tower or something that provides a range of services within it. Uh, it's owned by... Um, so Mervac did one in Sydney Olympic Park uh, that is uh, owned by... They set up a managed investment trust. And so having that trust, just like a community land trust, is just a... Sh- Legal structure where people can buy units in the trust and collectively own it, right? So instead of having investors owning mm-hmm. the trust, the residents could own the trust, mm-hmm. and that's the difference. The community land trust is the residents are owning it as opposed to foreign investors or a major corporation mm-hmm. or something like that,
1: which becomes profit-driven. Most it
3: becomes profit profit-driven, yeah. yeah. But um, what we're looking at is having a combination of the two, so that the 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 corporation, if you like, the development entity is setting up the system with whatever debt funding is needed to do that, uh, coupled with uh, a community uh, land trust that owns a portion of that for that village. And then uh, the residents can incrementally increase their shareholding and reduce the, Mm -hmm. the developer's shareholding. Uh, until, you know, it's fully bought out and then that money can be rolled over to develop another village.
1: Because this is an issue, like we, we've seen it especially in Canberra, because I think we're now the most expensive city in Australia to no. purchase real estate. <laughs> wow. um, you know, and only surpassing, for a 99 year lease yeah, as well. Surpassing <laughs> Sydney and Melbourne, incredible. I lived in Vancouver, Canada, which is, oh, I think, yeah, the second the most one. expensive city in the world. It goes um, Hong Kong, Vancouver, used to be Sydney, and just now it's Canberra. Oh, wow. um, so this is the issue, right? Where you've got people who have good incomes. Um, who maybe are just scraping by to get on the property market now, Mm. but they're going, my children will never be able to afford anything, you know. Mm. So when you look at Europe, you've got cities because you've got a finite amount of space you can build in a medieval city, right? Like that's sort of the limit. Mm. So people rent for 30 years, Mm. you know, you go to some of these old European cities and that's normalized. exactly. And it's safe. It's not, you know, like here we've got, every time your lease gets renewed, you're wondering if the owner of the property is going to try and capitalize on the fact that the real estate market's so Mm. good. And Mm. well, you have a home and then there's no more rental. So you you, you might lose your affordable rental now and then there's less and less rental stock. So Mm. you're talking about an idea that, will create more rental stock but also give some housing security around that as well? Yeah, I mean the
3: tagline for that, you know, the build to rent and, Mm -hmm. well, particularly for that project in Sydney Olympic Park is security of ownership Mm. with the flexibility of renting. Mm -hmm. So you can stay as long or as short as you like as long as you Keep paying your rent, you, mm, you not can stay the place, there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so mm-hmm. that's that's the problem with renting that we have here in Australia. That it, there's no security. Mm.
1: You well, can it's evictions
2: or whatever they like to use mm. to get people out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. think it's also the narrative that we have sort of you know when I came here as a migrant mm. twenty three years ago or whatever. It was the first thing I heard, like home ownership That was such an important part the of being an Australian, Australian dream. dream. The great Australian dream. Yes, so I think we just need a new dream.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like yeah. your dream. I'm buying into that one.
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a tagline uh, or article that, um, the other day about uh, people are not buying the great Australian dream anymore and that's the point, that they're mm-hmm. renting.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. So
3: it's not buying the house anymore. It's long-term renting as as an reasonable yeah, option you as long as you're yeah. providing
0: that. It's just turned into a dream. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but ownership
3: what we forget is ownership comes with responsibilities for managing that mm. in in these build to rent examples if your um, washing machine breaks down, there's three spares and the property manager who'll come and replace yours and get that fixed mm-hmm. and, you know, it's seamless. Yeah, there's right. a host on site. There's co-working spaces. So if you have to work from home, you don't have to stay in your apartment. You can go mm-hmm. to your co-working space mm-hmm. and there's a big kitchen there and whatever and it's just a much more flexible, open mm-hmm. Yeah, environment.
0: And really. and changes, a little said. bit like Sun Villages out at Queanbeyan almost. Yeah, we yes. visited them. Yeah. They
3: very yeah. interesting too.
1: So yeah. this idea of this investment in the place where you live, like, mm. you know, I think traditionally a lot of landlords say that they um, are most fearful of getting a bad tenant who won't look after the property, who will run it into the ground. And, you know, then you've got tenants who say, well, my landlord doesn't fix anything. <laughs> <and> <laughs> I'm, you know, always trying to get the, the yes. washing yes. machine repaired. Yeah. Yes. So um, that, that, those two things would be solved mm. by your model. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Have that sense Mm. of being taken care of, but a desire to yourself take Mm. care of the space in which you live to make it more enjoyable.
0: Yeah. So, John Michael Greer came up with a a simple pyramid. It's got a a bottom level, which is the broadest level, and then a a mid level and a little bit up the top. And the bottom level is it's the rest of nature. It's nature's been going for 3.6 billion years without any help from us. It's fine. It's just that's the rest of nature. That's the bottom bit. It's the foundation. If that crumbles, all the bits on top crumble. The next one is what we've managed to do with nature. So it's the stuff you can touch. It's the desk in front of us. It's the mm. the, the car, the house, anything that humans have made out of nature. And on top of that is the human imagination, the collective human imagination, mm. and that's the structures that we use to organise the bottom two layers. And of mm. course, that that top layer is dependent on the stuff we've made and on the rest mm. of nature. Otherwise, you know, if any of those two layers crumbles, down comes our structures, and that's where you get the collapse of civilizations. So, so these structures that we've made are essentially principles of organisation, and you know, current principles would be sort of employment, money, exponential economic growth, centralisation of everything, and Mm. uh, violence as a form of conflict resolution, competition, that sort of thing. What are what are the sort of principles of organisation that you guys have come up with in your model?
2: So decentralization is a big part of it, the, one of the opposites of what you talked yeah, about. Yeah, and, and so, you know, it, it, we just really need to be small communities uh, to empower ourselves. We're always kind of looking to a higher authority when we can do a lot of this stuff ourselves. And, um, and, yeah. and it's the best way to manage your food, water and energy. You don't have to... And, and there's so much loss in transporting all of these things to where we are. Um, yeah.
3: So we have some transition principles, so linear to circular, mm-hmm. uh, extractive to regenerative, centralised to distributed, uh, as, as as basically core transition ideas, or what are we coming from and what are we going to. Mm-hmm. But at the core, the four pro- principles that we have are Life, liberty, equality, and compassion. Oh, so, um, like a bit of French Revolution.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> so, but not the compassion bit. Yeah. Well, uh, didn't have the uh, compassion at the guillotine. Well, what the hell does fraternity <laughs> do mean so anyway? So
0: fraternity.
3: Well, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to remove the <laughs> masculine yeah. aspect yeah. of it yeah. and say, well, what is, you know, a brotherhood of like that's what it essentially mm. is intended. And it's about uh, compassion at its core means to struggle together. Mm. So to, to work together uh, as equals in order to give everybody freedom ultimately. Because if we do these basic needs, deliver these basic needs efficiently mm. in the true sense of an energy efficient way, not the money efficient way, um, then we create an abundance of life. Um, and, and, um, the freedom for everybody to then pursue what they want to pursue rather than being told what they have to do.
1: So, um, we do have a, I was just checking, we did have a question come in, um, and I would guess from the listeners, they've been seeing that this sounds like a really great idea, but it seems to be focused around a rural a location Mm. how would this work and this is from actually one of our us listeners Mm -hmm. how would this work in a big city and they're using the example of like the dead areas of detroit Mm. (laughs) that have just become abandoned and that they're food deserts and they're just not viable anymore we're even within a city so how could you apply this to something like detroit
3: (laughs) yeah well detroit's a good example because of the the you know, mm-hmm. after the GFC, there was mm-hmm. a big exodus. It's and moving
0: and into an abandoned village. Yeah, <laughs> actually,
3: real big I actually one. saw <laughs> some plans from the American Institute of Architects who were talking mm-hmm. about creating food gardens, a food web within the, the rural areas. And I think what we're doing, the reason why we're talking about rural areas is, is we need a clean slate. Uh, we need the rural land value to make it affordable and then manage that process of of land improvement uh, and land value improvement and capture it within the community rather than it being extracted. Mm -hmm. So there's reasons why we're starting with the rural areas. Mm -hmm. But there is, of course, you know, once there is a bit of an exodus, if you like, in in our kind of broad long-term vision, if there is a bit of an exodus towards some circular economy villages, then there's the space within the existing urban environments, particularly the suburban environments, mm-hmm. to do some of these things. And then, as Neil said at the beginning, you transition town ideas where you take down some fences, you convert one house into a So you're retrofitting. Retro and you're retrofitting. Yeah. So, yeah. retro suburbia, there's a whole lot of
0: conversation. Yeah, David around. Holmgren's latest book, Retro yeah. Suburbia, yeah, yeah, yeah. is a huge resource for that. Yeah. yeah.
2: But I, I think also as we sort of transition into electric vehicles and, and all of this, we're going to have a lot of abandoned spaces like parking lots. There's an example in Portland where a parking lot was was used to grow food and they reskilled skilled homeless people to work there. Um, so I think as as we change, there's going to be lots of white elephants that we can re- retrofit and and create community. I saw an example of, of a... Um, a shopping center that had been converted into sort of apartment living oh, and wow. into a community hub like there's lots plenty of s-
0: communal space in there yeah, yeah.
1: Mm. Mm.
2: so there's definitely you know viability
1: to take this model um into an inner city I'll Into a, a, a very way. structured area right
3: yeah but but ultimately mm. we need to build in water systems and mm. food systems and so the the endless paving and concrete the heat needs deserts, to, yeah. needs to yeah. come yeah. out yeah. and yeah there are examples i think neil mentioned of reconstructing channels and making creek lines again or uh you know converting car parks Mm. into parks Mm. proper Mm. parks
1: Mm. (coughs) so if people have been really excited hearing about what you're talking about today where can they go and find out more and if they want to get involved or they want to maybe potentially find out more about uh, bellingen what's happening there so
2: um, what should they do so, our website, mm-hmm. au is a great place to start. There's lots of resources there, links to journal articles. We share a lot of this information on LinkedIn. So, if people perhaps you could put some links in, is there a way to yeah, put some can links in on, your do on, on the post yeah. on our Facebook page about the exactly? Yeah, 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 so Police Plan is, is our town planning company. We have a page on LinkedIn, uh, but people can also follow us individually on LinkedIn and we share little updates on what's happening there that's probably yeah. a good place
3: yeah so beauty is beauty and utility mm. merged together if you like so beauty yeah, yeah. uh, or polisplan.com.au that'll go to the same website that's right mm. there
0: was some guy who said you know don't do anything if it's not beautiful or useful yeah, yeah. 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 But it
3: has to be both like <laughs> yeah, and this that's is the right. other thing yep. we want yeah. to create that environment that's beautiful
1: Mm. 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 Well, that sounds like an amazing thing. And I'd like to leave our listeners with a beautiful quote that came from both of you. It says, we shape our cities thereafter, they shape us. Yes. That was yeah. Winston Churchill. Oh, it was Winston Churchill. Well, he, I saw he, it on one he, of your sites. So I thought maybe it could come Well, up. he said was, buildings. Was, he was, said we shape was, our buildings, buildings and we right. just
3: change that to cities. Yeah. 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 But that's, that's or what our we definitely believe. Right? Yes. Yeah. Our communities. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Well, that sounds incredible. Well, it's been amazing to have you both on the show with us. And we'd love to have you back after Bellingen gets up and running Ooh. in the end oh. here about how mm. that's course, going that'd yeah. be really yeah, exciting yeah. to do yeah, that absolutely. So, um thank you for joining us this morning and that's Stephen liaras and Neil de silva talking to us about circular economy villages
0: you have been listening to an episode of a line in the sound the podcast made by co-ops commons and communities canberra co-canberra for short the new economy network of australia or nina and radio behind the lines from Community Radio XXX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see xfm.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCambra, contact us at info at cocambra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups which we share with Nina Canberra regional hub where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full time with this and lots of other related work, look up Libera Pay, LiberaPay, L I B E R A P A Y, and search for community supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.